Welcome to Fully Yours, a podcast about food, the sacred, and ordinary moments of extraordinary belonging. Hey, this is Christy. And I'm Eva. And together with our dear friend Chloe, we are fully yours. We came together in graduate school and recognized a shared passion for bread straight from the oven, for salt and lots of it, and community. Every two weeks, we share an episode digging into the world of food and spirituality, and we are humbled to have you join us at the table today. In the spirit of this season's theme, which explores all things time as it relates to food and community, today we explore the role of fasting and feasting in community as spiritual practice. To do so, we are delighted to sit down with my dear friend Trevor Treach to reflect on his own spiritual journey and how seasons of collective fasting and feasting continue to form who he is. So Trevor was born and grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. He was raised in various Protestant Christian denominations and attended Hendricks College in Arkansas. The best college, (laughs) apparently. (laughs) And during our sophomore year of college, Trevor converted to Islam and met me, Eva, um, and also met Edward, whom he would go on to marry in 2017. Trevor graduated from Hendrix in 2012 with an English degree and then moved to New Jersey. He was initiated into the Nor Ashki Jarahi Sufi Circle in Manhattan in 2013. He moved back to Arkansas soon after that and is now pursuing a Master of Social Work degree at the University of Arkansas to become a therapist. Trevor is a foodie, though he claims he is not a cook, but I beg to differ. (laughs) He loves his cat, Jack, and traveling with his husband. And when he's not busy working or studying for class, he spends his free time reading, writing, playing video games, hanging out with me, (laughs) discovering new restaurants in central Arkansas, and exploring the beauty of the natural state that we call Arkansas. Trevor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I think what you ladies talk about here is really important and inspiring. So I hope uh, more people discover this gem of a podcast. (laughs) Thank you. So Trevor, to begin today, we thought we could share a poem that you sent our way called There is a Hidden Sweetness by Mevlani Rumi. And we wondered if you could start us off today by reading this poem. I'd love to. There's hidden sweetness in the stomach's emptiness. We are lutes, no more, no less. If the sound box is stuffed full of anything, no music. If the brain and the belly are burning clean with fasting, every moment a new song comes out of the fire. The fog clears and new energy makes you run up the steps in front of you. Be emptier and cry like reed instruments cry. Emptier, write secrets with the reed pen. When you're full of food and drink, Satan sits where your spirit should, an ugly metal statue in place of the Kaaba. When you fast, good habits gather like friends who want to help. 
Fasting is Solomon's ring. Don't give it to some illusion and lose your power. But even if you have, if you've lost all will and control, they come back when you fast, like soldiers appearing out of the ground, pennants flying above them. A table descends to your tents, Jesus's table. Expect to see it when you fast, this table spread with other food, better than the broth of cabbages. There's, there are so many interweavings of a lot of different theological themes going on through there. And, and as we reflect on your journey today and the themes of fasting and feasting, can you tell us a little more about what this poem brings up for you? You know, it's funny because this podcast is about food, um, but fasting means sort of, uh, well, abstaining from food, exactly that. But in not partaking of the food during the fast, we become really aware, I think, of food and its role in our lives because what is usually, or what can be, a mindless habit um, is stripped away and we're, we're able to look at it in, in a new light, I think, and in a clearer light and appreciate it for, for what it is, um, which is sustenance, um, physical sustenance. And two, by taking the focus away from that physical aspect, we're able to sort of realign and refocus on the spiritual. And I think that's what, what Rumi's kind of hinting at. So we're going to take a journey with you, dear listener, back to 2009, 2010, to a little town called Conway, Arkansas, to Hendricks College, a small liberal arts school um, where we became friends. And it sounds like that year, besides becoming best friends with me, (laughs) was a very transformational year. It sounds um, like I'm missing out. You keep like dropping hints like he's the best friend I've ever had. <laughs> well, he is. <laughs> <laughs> so Trevor, tell us more about how the events of that year formed your spiritual life. Well, honestly, I would say that the journey started before that year. Um In my early teens, uh, I definitely had a sense of not fitting in at church and not really having a space to explore faith on my own terms and ask questions. And that led me to sort of drift away from those communities that that I had belonged to at that time. Um, And another huge factor was that I was, you know, I realized I had an attraction to other men and I didn't really see a place for people like me in those communities. So I became, you know, a seeker and sort of struck out on my own. And that was very freeing and empowering, but also frightening and lonely at times. Mm. But I started learning a lot about different faith traditions and belief systems, even though I didn't have a spiritual practice or a community of my own. Um, And then my freshman year at Hendrix, one of the required freshman courses was a liberal arts overview of different wisdom traditions and schools of thought called journeys. And one of these that we studied was Islam. And during the first class, all the freshmen were crammed into one of those big lecture halls. And the professor, you remember Dr. Carnahan. um, Love him. Yeah, an excellent professor. We did not have him long enough. 
he played the adhan, the call to prayer. And as the Arabic sounds entered my ears, I just felt every fiber of my being uh, reverberate with reverberate in response. And I had goosebumps and tears started running down my face um, mm -hmm. right there with a hundred other <laughs> freshman students around me. But I felt completely alone with God. And that was that was sort of my big conversion experience, I guess you could say. Wow. I feel like in a lot of ways, we're recognizing that the divine in, in whatever faith that you you are part of, the divine sort of shows up in the most random of places, including a lecture hall, <laughs> right? It's it's incredibly beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And and we also know that you're a part of the Nur Ashki Drahi Sufi Circle. Um, so I'm curious about your journey to that community and, and what you've learned along the way. Well, um, after freshman year, I d so I didn't personally identify as a Muslim until my sophomore year. Um, I, I had taken a class and then I started doing more research on my own and I actually really discovered Sufism through the Mevlevi order um, online, uh, the Threshold Society. You can look them up if you want. Mm. And that was when I taught myself to pray Salat in Arabic and, you know, memorized verses of the Quran to do that. And that was the same year I met Eva. She was in choir with me. And that was the same year I met... Edward, who I would go on to marry. Um, but after graduating, I moved to Jersey City, New Jersey with Edward because he was getting his master's degree at Rutgers. And I, I literally just Googled Sufis in New York City <laughs> and I found uh, the Nur Ashki Jarahi order. And I just showed up one Thursday evening for Zikrullah, which is the the sort of central practice for Sufis. It's a like a litany repetition of the divine names of God. And um, I felt like I had finally found a worthy spiritual teacher, Sheikh Afariha, and a community. And I was just warmly welcomed. And that was it. It was like coming home. Um, I just really love hearing this story again. I mean, I've heard you share this a few times, but in a few different ways and um yeah it's just really it's very moving so thank you for for sharing it with us um so we've talked we've mentioned that you are something of a foodie and as we speak we've devoured some kiwis and strawberries <laughs> um in this season of summer um so we're wondering if there's a special memory of food that comes to mind as we move into this topic and it it could just be a spiritual experience of food or just any anything. Actually, one of my earliest and fondest memories of food is from my childhood. Um every summer my brother and I would stay with my grandmother in the countryside. This was in Aneta, Texas west of Fort Worth, and we stay with her to attend vacation Bible school at her United Methodist Church, where she worked. And we would have to get up early uh, in order to be there on time, and my grandmother would make us breakfast. And my favorite breakfast that she made was oatmeal. Um, and it wasn't anything fancy, just whole oats, butter, sugar, and cinnamon. Um, and it's funny that I have that memory and that it just sticks with me with food, 
maybe it was special because I didn't eat oatmeal at home. Maybe it was just that, you know, we were out of school and in the country and I don't know. It just stays with me. But as an adult, um, my favorite suhoor, my favorite meal to eat in the morning during Ramadan is oatmeal. Um, I'll add some fruit and seeds or whatever. And I find that it, it sustains me best through the fast. Um, and maybe that's because, you know, oatmeal is just one of those kind of heavy carb things, you know, fiber, slow to digest. But I, I like to think it might also be because of that connection, you know, that that I sort of <laughs> went on this childhood retreat to vacation Bible school. And now that's what I eat um, during that special time of year uh, as an adult. So mm. it's interesting. That's really beautiful. And, y- and you tied in um, your Islamic faith as well to the fasting component. Um, so we're also curious, how has your journey into Islam affected your relationship with food um, and community both together? And in particular, I used to work at a retreat center as a cook, and we would have some guests come in and ask for halal. So can you tell us a little bit about halal cooking and, and eating and what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So like Judaism, Islam has its own dietary laws. Um, In the Quran, God forbids eating carrion, blood, pork, um, and any food that's not dedicated to God's name. Mm. Um, Consuming intoxicants is also strongly encouraged, so most Muslims don't drink. Mm. Um, On the other hand, um, God also encourages people in the Quran to eat from what has been provided for them and not to restrict themselves when no restriction is necessary. Mm. So there is sort of this middle way. And Islam often describes itself as a middle way Mm. of moderation, so not not overly permissive or restrictive. And I think fasting really embodies this um, because it's an opportunity to re-examine our habits and our priorities. Um, Actually, when the Prophet Muhammad did uh, um, his mirage, the sort of night journey, uh, a mystical journey into intimacy with God, it's said that the angel Gabriel presents him with three beverages to choose from, maybe as a kind of test, we're not really sure, Um, water, milk, and wine. And the Prophet chooses milk, which is neither austere like the water or indulgent like the wine. Hmm. And milk also has, you know, connotations of a mother's nurturing. So I think this choice is a sort of a symbol of the nature of the Prophet's heart, peace be upon him, and of Islam as a whole. Hmm. So in in your relationships with fasting and feasting, um, I'm curious about, if these moments corresponded with a communal or religious lens on time. So you've talked a little bit about these special times of year. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like on an individual basis for you and also on a communal basis for the communities that you're a part of? Time in Islam is is very much present because two of the central practices that come to mind, well, really all of them, um, So Salat is the five times daily prayer, which corresponds to uh, the position of the sun in the sky during the day. And so the interesting thing about this 
prayer is that it's it's not really up to our initiative as Muslims. It's a response to what I would say is the divine invitation during different times of the day to reconnect. Mm. Um, of course, prayer is appropriate at any time of, of our own volition, but I think um, the Salat prayer is special in that way, that, you know, each day only comes once, and each prayer comes only one time a day, you know, five different times, and that's, that's an opportunity that we're invited to partake of, mm. um, to return into intimacy um, and fasting during the holy month of Ramadan is another one of the five pillars. Um, and the practice of fasting, of course, is much older than Islam, but I think it has sort of a special place in this religious tradition. Um, it's a special opportunity for the whole community, and it's my favorite time of year. I, I often describe it to my Christian friends as like Lent and Christmas all rolled into one. Mm -hmm. Um, and although fasting is the central practice during Ramadan, it also commemorates the sending down of the Qur'an. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of reading and contemplating the Qur'an. A lot of Muslims will try to read the entire Qur'an during the lunar month of Ramadan. And there are extra prayers performed during the night as well. Um, so Muslims really, it is a time of community and coming together um, in faith and in charity a little bit of a tangent from talking about fasting and more about prayer but i don't know who first coined this phrase holy envy but i have often experienced holy envy for islam and the practice of stopping five times a day to pray um i mean we prayer is obviously a central part of the christian tradition um but not in such a, it's not as explicit. Um, yeah, so I wonder if, if you want to speak to some of your own personal practices of prayer and maybe if, if and how Ramadan is part of that. Um, yeah, and then just more broadly, how kind of the, season, the seasons and rhythms of fasting and feasting have shifted maybe your own relationship to time R ramadan and i experienced this you know as a young person and in honoring lent too is an opportunity for a rededication and a refocus mm -hmm. um and I, I i definitely experienced that as a muslim um it's a. Uh, you know uh, praying five times a day uh, particularly in a culture where that's not the norm um is is a challenge um and so to for ramadan to arrive it's almost as if it comes with its own ease um it, it makes it makes praying and being reverent and being present easy and so it's almost as if you know even if even if I've been personally neglectful of practice during other times of the year, um, you know, I'll think, oh, you know, thank God Ramadan is here and I can, 
I can sort of, l you know, leave everything that came before behind and start over. And even the smallest effort will, uh, will produce something of value for me during this time. Um, and there's a lot of hadith, there's a lot of stories and sayings in the Islamic tradition about uh, about the power of Ramadan to sort of multiply multiply blessings and and goodness um, such that acts of prayer and charity during other times of the year during Ramadan they're they're multiplied exponentially you know beyond what what we can account for sort of materially with our limited vision you know we're we're just sort of invited to imagine you know the extent to which you know a moment spent in prayer or the tiniest bit of food given to the hungry really matters and is multiplied sort of like the the story of jesus and the fish and the loaves mm -hmm. really i think ramadan parallels that uh, you know for a full for a full lunar month one of the phrases that you shared early on was with Ramadan comes a sense of ease. Um, you you find yourself, um, at least the way that it sounds, what I heard is that like you find yourself craving an excuse to get back to the prayers and get back on time. Um, does that sound right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it often strikes people as it surprises people because they see fasting as this sort of, uh, well, it is difficult, you mm. know, um, but the Quran says, uh, with difficulty comes ease. Mm. And I definitely get a sense of that during Ramadan. And, and sort of along a similar vein. Um, so you mentioned it is challenging. It is difficult. Um, but in terms of the dominant culture of where we are, what, what particular challenges um, do you face? I mean, what do you face during your work day? What do you face on weekends? What are, uh, you know, how do you maintain this beautiful faith practice in the midst of such a crazy world sometimes? Mm. Y you bring up a really good point. Um, fasting in a non-fasting society is particularly challenging. Mm. Uh, in places where there are many Muslims, you would get time off work to be with your family, mm. rest as you need to, pray, and so Here, you know, you have to go to work or school and attend to your responsibilities. Um, you get fatigued more easily. My husband always jokes that I'm no fun during Ramadan because <laughs> I just want to nap. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so me and the cat just nap together. <laughs> But um, yeah, everyone around you continues to eat. And, you know, what's <laughs> what's hard for me is I have to turn down these lovely invitations to lunch and dinner mm. all the time. And people will kindly offer you food when they see that you have none mm. and you have to refuse and explain. And uh, people will assume that I'm on. Oh, you know, I say oh, I'm, I'm fasting and they'll say, oh, uh, like a diet. <laughs> <laughs> and. I'm a pretty slender guy, so, you know, they, they get a little worried about that. And, you know, so I have to explain that, no, it's not for weight loss. It's part of my faith and I'm Muslim. And that just makes them more <laughs> confused. So there's a there's there's a sense that which, you know, the culture sort of forces you to come out as Muslim, mm. um, which can be uh, 
challenging because we're you know living in a time that's there's a lot of misinformation about islam mm. uh sometimes even paranoia about muslim people um and i don't i don't often speak about my faith openly because it is personal and because i am sometimes asked to sort of justify myself um but i do love talking about fasting and and i always encourage people to do it uh people who are not accustomed to fasting will react in all kinds of ways they often think that it's extreme or that like i said before it's some kind of self-mortification um, and this is one facet of the fast but um in the quran people who are elderly l diabetic or traveling they don't have to fast prepubescent children don't fast Neither do women who are menstruating, pregnant, or nursing. So although fasting can be difficult, it's not meant as a hardship. And ultimately, I think fasting is a very intimate matter between each soul and their Lord. So for me, it's, it's a privilege and a gift that I accept to the best of my ability each year when that time comes. Mm. So you recently celebrated Eid al-Fit, can you tell us more about the experience of breaking fast? Uh, breaking fast is so special. Um, breaking fast at the end of each day with iftar, uh, as well as at the end of Ramadan with Eid, is an incredible experience. And I can't really describe it with words. <laughs> it's best if you experience it yourself, so I really encourage you to you know, try fasting for maybe four days and just and just feel that sense of gratitude wash over you and um for me really a sense a knowing of the immensity of the divine generosity mm. um traditionally the prophet peace be upon him would break his fast with dates and water and most muslims will do the same when they can to sort of honor that on the physical level, dates are very high in natural sugar, so they get the blood sugar levels back to normal quickly. Um, but on a deeper level, I think they also represent the sweetness of Allah's all-encompassing love and caring, which can be found even after a day of not eating and even in the harshest of deserts, which is where date palms grow. You've, you've mentioned... A couple of very important foods to you. Um, you've mentioned oatmeal, which you actually had this morning. We were doing a mic check and we asked you what you had for breakfast this morning. <laughs> and you've mentioned dates and water. Um, when you think across the, um, the tradition of Islam, uh, what other foods or what other food practices or traditions really stand out to you? And, and what sort of a memory that you have connected to that? I know that you said you can't really even describe what it's like to break fast because it's so filled with gratitude and, and so filled with beauty. It's, it's truly a, a supernatural moment. Um, but are there, are there memories or, or anything that you can share with us in regards to any sort of other food traditions that you've really connected with? Yes. Um, so when it's time to break fast, often at the Durga in Manhattan, which is where we gather to do zikr and pray and be together as a, a Sufi community, um, you break the fast with dates and then we'd pray the evening prayer 
Um, and then later, you know, after the meal, which I think one thing I love about Islam is that it spans so many borders and cultures. Um, so really, every culture has its own sort of Ramadan meals. Um, and at the, at the Durga in Manhattan, which is such a multicultural area of the country anyway, you would just you would always have such a an array of different delicious hand prepared meals ready um to break the fast and so that was always amazing i mean moroccan lamb stews mm. um you know dishes from india from indonesia um just I anything you can imagine and it was always such a pleasure um and I know too that there's a there's a special <laughs> additional trial for those people who, while fasting, are preparing food <laughs> to break the fast. Mm. Uh, that can be difficult. Um, I also remember uh, often we would have watermelon, and uh, it's often said that watermelon was uh, the prophet's favorite food, mm. and. Um, it just fits in really well with, with Ramadan. It, you know, like dates, ra uh, watermelon is just so sweet. And it's also, you know, one of the, has one of the highest water contents of, of any food. So after a long day of fasting, um, it really uh, refreshes you for, mm. you know, evening prayer and for just being grateful for um, everything that's provided. Well, Trevor, this has been very rich, and I feel like we could go on for, we could do a whole podcast just on this topic. So thank you so much for sharing, not only about your story of your journey to Islam, but also about Ramadan and practices of feasting and fasting. Any final words you'd like to leave for our listeners? Uh, at the heart of fasting is, is becoming aware of what we consume whether that's what we eat or what we pay attention to. Uh, what do our thoughts become caught up in? What causes us to feel defensive? What do we sacrifice in the name of avoiding boredom or pain? Mm. I think today fasting from television and the internet would be a powerful practice. Or even, you know, remaining silent for two days. Um, so there are many ways to fast. And... Uh, I hope that fasting or, and whatever means to mindfulness um, can be spread among all human beings so, so our lives can be elevated and made more beautiful. And thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us at the table. We would love to hear from you. Let us know what you think by leaving a rating on iTunes or if you have show ideas, comments, or just want to reach us directly, send us an email at fully.yours.podcast at gmail.com. For today's show notes, our blog, and more, be sure to check us out at fullyyourspodcast.com. Huge thanks to Steve Dry and Catalyst of Harvard Epworth United Methodist Church, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for their generous grant funding of this podcast. 
Shout out to the talented Joel Adams and Melody Stanford Martin for producing the original song featured in this podcast. Also to Melody for our gorgeous logo design and to our dream team for keeping us grounded and inspired. Until next time, we are fully yours.